Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. I'm back in the seat after a couple of weeks out of Brussels, so I thought I'd give you a few hot takes. We've got the Spitzen candidate race for European Commission president finally getting real. It's heating up. We've got Alexander Stubb in the race now, and he is going to go head-to-head with Manfred Weber for the European People's Party nomination. It's a clash of contrasts, and we're going to hear more from them over the coming weeks. We've got an EU summit coming up next week, and it's been extended. It's not only going to talk about the Eurozone and about migration, it's going to be extended for a day to talk about Brexit, to make sure that it doesn't then collide with a group of visiting Asian leaders, because we've seen this before at EU leader summits, where the EU is too busy looking at itself to look after its guests. Hopefully some common sense has prevailed, and we won't be embarrassing those guests next week. Another issue where common sense needs to prevail is on the Italian budget. We've heard a lot of hyperventilation over the last few days about whether the big spending promises of the new populist coalition government is going to be in line with EU budget rules. Well, let's stop and breathe for a second. It's up to Italy to propose its budget in this six-month window, and the EU's only supposed to come down with its recommendations or its complaints in the next six-month window in 2019. So we've got plenty of time to sort this out. The other thing catching my eye was the rise or the increasing expression of Romanian illiberalism. We've heard a lot about Hungary and Poland and the difficulties they're having adhering to EU value systems and the EU rules. Well, Romania, it's coming forward with a referendum this week that is going to try and strictly define families in a way that's, let's say, not so inclusive of all the different ways that families can form. And we know that they've got a bunch of problems with transparency and corruption. So the European Parliament was once again shaking the tree and saying that it's going to make a habit out of criticizing governments that don't adhere to its version of orthodox EU values. And we're going to see more from this government as it tries to take a grip on all of these scandals. Coming up next, we've got an interview with Alexander Stubb. He's that new candidate in the race to replace Jean-Claude Juncker. He's Finnish, he's an Ironman triathlete, and he's pitching himself as a next generation leader. We're going to put that to the test in the interview. I spoke to Alexander Stubb on Thursday afternoon at the Sofitel Hotel Europe in Brussels, just down the road from the European Union headquarters. There's a little bit of background noise because we spoke in an open space, but Stubb was casual, in a good mood, and raring to go. Joining me now on EU Confidential is the newly declared EPP Spitzen candidate, Alexander Stubb. Welcome, Alexander. Thank you, thank you. So for anyone who's not up to speed on that, Alexander is running to replace Jean-Claude Juncker as European Commission President, and he's seeking the votes of European People's Party delegates at a conference in Helsinki 
his home city, his home country, in November. So tell us a little bit more about your campaign. You have basically pitched yourself as staunchly internationalist, obviously pro-EU and very optimistic in your bid. I think one of your campaign slogans says you're made in Finland but designed in the EU. Sounds very attractive to people in the EU bubble. How are you going to make that stick? How are you going to make that land with EPP delegates and ordinary Europeans? Well, first of all, I think we should congratulate the EPP delegates for coming to Finland in the month of November. It's going to be pretty cold and grim and dark and the rest of it. But therefore, I think I have a slogan for that as well. Finland, even cooler than you think. I think that'll work quite well. No saunas then? No, well, of course. I mean, plenty of saunas. And if you can't stand the heat, get out kind of approach. Uh, No, my starting point is, if you want to put it in one word, is values. And I think that European values and Western values are being attacked at the moment from the outside, the US, China, Russia, from the inside in few of our countries at the moment, uh, such as Poland, Italy, perhaps Romania, Hungary, and then inside the EPP party as well with Fidesz and Viktor Orban. And these are issues that have to be addressed. So I'm going to drive a very value-based, pragmatic, pro-European campaign. Does this mean that I don't want to address the worries that a lot of people reverting to populism have. Uh, No, it doesn't. I do want to address them. We have to take populism head on, and that means that we need to find some solutions. I guess Viktor Orban might not be voting for you at the Congress then. I know know Viktor quite well. We were prime ministers at the same time. Uh, It just all depends on how we do. I think values are pretty much binary at the end of the day. Either you abide by them or you don't. I mean, I want liberal democracy, not illiberal democracy. There is one big difference that we have. Now, why does it have to be you? There's obviously a lot of people who want the jobs. Why would you be the best person? Well, I mean, my starting point, obviously, is that I have the experience. I mean, I've been for the four years as a member of the European Parliament. Before that, I actually had a life as a civil servant. So I was at the Finnish Permanent Representation. I worked in the Commission. But probably more importantly, I've been eight years in government. Uh, done Prime Minister, Finance Minister, Foreign Minister, Trade Minister, and Europe Minister. So I've been around. I'm a true European believer. There's no question about that. At the same time, I'm quite pragmatic. And to be honest, Perhaps it would be time to have a Nordic as well. We haven't had any top positions from uh, Finland, Denmark uh, or Sweden over the history of the European Union. But obviously at the end of the day, it's going to be up to the EPP delegates, about 750, 755 of them, to take that decision in Helsinki. And that's only the first step. Second step is going to be the European Parliament elections. We'll see how well we do. Uh, and the third step is then going to be putting the commission together. I hope the delegates, of course, in Helsinki, you know, they'll make their choice based on three things. Number one, do I like the person or not? Do I share his or her values? Uh, Number two, who would be the best person to drive a Europe-wide campaign in many different languages for the EPP? And then finally, who is the most serious candidate to actually become commission president? You know, I think the EPP is in a win-win situation. Munford is very good as well. So let's unpick two of those points you just made. One was on your experience In the past, we would have said, wow, that's a great CV. That's everything we look for in a politician. In this era, when people are searching for anti-politicians or younger generations, you know, sometimes it doesn't count as much. Do you think that your experience is really going to help? Well, I would say that I'm... uh uh, the next generation with bifocals. Uh, I just got these on Saturday. As a matter of fact, I think experience helps. I mean, if you haven't been in the European Council with the prime ministers, if you haven't been a prime minister really feeling the pressure and the heat, I think it's going to be very difficult to handle the commission presidency. And 
obviously, you know, we've seen two of the previous ones. Uh, Jean-Claude Juncker was a former prime minister, 19 years of government experience, and José Manuel Barroso as well, former prime minister. Then comes the next generation, a new generation, anti-political, yeah, perhaps, but I think I do feel, and I, people who know me, I do things a little bit differently. I've, I haven't been born in, in cabinets. I actually hate cabinet politics as such. I'm quite open. I'm quite transparent. Uh, some of you might have seen me on social media as well. You know, probably a little bit too active for some liking, if I'm from some people's liking. I might have done you a disservice. I gave a quote to a Finnish news outlet saying, well, it'd be a real novelty if we ended up with a candidate uh, showing off in his Speedos at some point, because you are a triathlete. So I, well, I don't know if you plan any of that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I do do sports. It's just a way to basically keep my energy levels and also uh, to basically stay young to a certain extent. But I think, you know, what helps me also is I have two kids, you know, 14 and 16, two teenagers. They keep you posted on what's really going on in the world. You know, you can't land this kind of a job out of nowhere. I mean, it, it, we kind of see the damage that the current U.S. president coming from outside of politics is actually doing to the cohesiveness of the whole country. And we don't need that. We do need to f- have new ways of doing stuff. There's no question about it. But we also need a hell of a lot more unity at the moment. So you're a little bit skeptical then about Trump, but maybe you have an in. Because one thing I really didn't know about you until this week is that you're a talented golfer. So would you be taking him to the golf course? <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, if that would help in, in, in trying to find a Trump-like deal, certainly. You know, probably the second thing I have going for me is that I've studied for four years in Greenville, South Carolina, Furman University, so I can at least put down a, a southern draw. Yeah, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to my old life and pick up a stick, uh, pick up a club, uh, if so be, and, you know, perhaps to spend four hours, because I like walking, not driving driving on a golf course, I'll do that. But I haven't played golf for four or five years. But, you know, I'm an old fox. You don't forget that stuff. Now, let's circle back to the second point you were talking mm-hmm. about, which was being potentially the first Nordic or even Northern European president, depending on how you mark that geographic boundary. What does that imply? What would it mean for people up there or for Europe to have someone from that region in the hot seat? Well, I'm sure it would mean a lot. But, I mean, the starting point is that I'm a center-right moderate. I strongly believe in the Nordic welfare model. And for me, of course, that means that you have a few key elements. One is that you have open economies. And two is that you have safety, social networks. And I find that very important. And then, of course, Nordic societies are based on egalitarianism. You know, that basically means equal treatment of men and women. It basically also treats, uh, means uh, functioning healthcare and especially an education system. So we would probably bring a slightly Nordic hand to the way in which uh, things are done. And I, I would wish that that would be helpful for Europe as a whole, because at the end of the day, all of us need to build strong welfare societies. And is there anything in particular you want to flag now that you'd change about the EU? You know, you mentioned education there. It's not a huge competence issue here in Brussels. You know, people talk about it, they fund it a little bit, but it's not really the core of what the EU does. Is that an example of something you'd want to shake up if you got the job? Well, probably two or three things. Uh, Number one is actually technology. I firmly believe that we're in the midst of a digital revolution, which will change uh, the economy and work. It will change politics and media. And actually, it will change science and mankind. And if we don't prepare this stage well, then I think we will be doomed. And I'm not only talking about the likes of Trump and Brexit emerging into politics, the incitement of hate and fear. I'm talking about 
the human value, human dignity as such. If we don't take care of this transition where people are, have to seek for new work, I think we're in trouble. And I think there's no other better place to do it than the European level. On top of that, there are going to be huge moral and ethical questions about DNA manipulation, uh, gene manipulation, biomechanics in the future that have to be addressed. And I think we should find common rules for that. The other thing is education. I, I do believe that that is the basic source of happiness. And I quite often get asked, you know, from youngsters or parents even, you know, what would you study today? You know, I have a liberal arts background. And today's kids, and I tell this to my kids as well, it's three things. Number one is you need to learn how to learn. Be analytical because facts are there. You need to understand the facts, but you don't need to cram the facts. You need to learn how to think analytically. Secondly, I tell them that emotional intelligence and empathy will be assets for life. The way in which you and I treat each other as human beings, as society moves more and more towards a technology-driven, robot-driven, artificial intelligence-driven society, the way in which you and I interact empathetically will be a key. And thirdly, I asked kids and youngsters to start taking care of themselves, you know, whether it's taking care of their mind and their body, basically managing themselves in the future, because their lives will be much more shaky than ours. You know, you and I will probably study, we have three phases in life, study, work, retire. These kids are going to be different. It's going to be study, work, study again, work, study again, and find a new job. So, you know, the, the, their life will be a lot less predictable than ours. Now, a couple of EU nerdy questions for an EU nerd, I guess, about the Spitzen candidate process. Tell us a bit about why people should care about this or following what you and the other candidates are doing if they can't stick their mark next to your name on a ballot paper. And then my other question related to that is about debates. I'm a big proponent of debates as a way to bring people into one space to think about their democracy and to see the choices in front of them. I've just sent you an invitation to appear at a debate with Manfred Weber. Are you willing to take up that invitation and future invitations to debates? I'm there, and any invitation I get for a debate, I'll do it. I just took a five-week leave of absence from my work, regular work at the European Investment Bank, just to be able to do that. I think this is a European primary. It is very possible that the next Commission president comes from the winner of this primary election, the EPP. And therefore, I think it's very important that we have these types of open town hall debates where we can have, I think, open and constructive discussions about the future of Europe. So yeah, I'm in. If you invite me, I'm there. Uh, second point in general, why should people follow this whole thing, uh, this Spitzenkandidat, the lead candidate? Well, at this stage, it's very important to raise issues. And if you're interested in things European, if you're interested in things of the future, listen to what these guys have to say. You know, if you like the EPP, of course it's important, but if you like some other party, some other person as well. So you can compare and contrast the different ideas that the candidates put forward. I actually like this procedure because it brings exposure to the European Union. We can sometimes be quite bureaucratic and boring, but this process brings at least a little bit of, how would I say, sex appeal to the whole process. I thought maybe we'd finish with a couple of quick questions. Uh, you know, don't have to be one-word answers, but brief answers. Um, maybe kicking off with, who's your political hero? Angela Merkel. She took me under her wing when I was prime minister. I have tremendous respect for her. She's a beacon of stability in many ways, the leader of the free world. I know that she's having a tough time politically right now, but I'd vote for her. Is there anything you've heard a Eurosceptic say that you agree with? Yes, that the European Union is not able to address questions that 
are close to every individual. What's your favorite place in the world? Home. Where's home? Home is in Espo, and for those of you who don't know, it's a city right next to Helsinki. I was born in Helsinki, only three kilometers away from that. But home is my favorite place. I'm very much a, what you would call a family man, a bit of a home rat. And what was your most satisfying moment in politics, in your political career at least? Um, I must go back to the first elections that I did in 2004, because I only joined politics in 2004. I ran in the European Parliament elections, complete outsider. I came from an academic and civil service background, and in Finland you actually get in only on personal votes. And I got second most personal votes in the whole country, and it was a memorable moment. I had run a five-month campaign at the time, and uh, that was probably the best thing that had ever happened. And if there's one thing you could change about this EU that you love, what would it be? take it out of the cabinets and put it out in the open. Alexander Stubb, thank you for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you. And in Finnish, that's kiitos. I've also invited Manfred Weber, Alexander Stubb's rival for the EPP nomination for Commission President, to join us on a future episode of EU Confidential. And both men, of course, have been invited to participate in a debate at Politico's offices at another date later in October, once all the nominations have been finalized. And now it's time to welcome back the Brussels Brains Trust, and I'm going to welcome myself back to Brussels. Ryan Heath is introducing Alva Finn and Lena Aberus. Hi, Ryan. Well done on your wedding. It was Thank a beautiful... Well, well done you for being the celebrant. Oh, it was a beautiful, beautiful time, and we're glad that you're back. Lovely having you back, and uh, good morning. Looking forward. Now, I've brought some sun into the office to remind us of Greece and to pretend that we're not going to talk about a bunch of warring politicians from France and from Britain. Why don't we start off with a couple of French cases? We have the EU WTF of the seventh resignation from the Macron government. They've barely been there for 18 months. Gérard Colomb, who was the interior minister, he's out. He was one of Macron's big socialist allies. And that comes hot on the heels of Nicolas Hulot, who was one of the other left-wing allies of Macron. And it's leaving him a little bit isolated on the left, let's say. What, what do you reckon about this resignation? I think it's really interesting that he keeps having such high-level members of his cabinet resigning. You know, it has a little bit of parallels with the Trump administration, who keep having a revolving door. And I wonder if it's on Marsh or Il Marsh on his own. Ooh, you know? so, ooh <laughs> Alva, you are on fire. <laughs> um, yeah, but it doesn't really look good for him and his approval ratings have bottomed, tanked out as a result of that. He's very popular here in Brussels and abroad in the international community. He's seen as this kind of like leader of the progressive or centrist progressives in the international stage. But he probably needs to be a bit more humble, I think. And obviously the problems have come from, I don't think really that's why the environmental minister, he really, I think, was up against the problems around climate change and and how to bring things forward. But this minister who resigned seemed to be very, very critical of how Macron runs things. Lena? This is politics. Uh, Ministers come, ministers go. And I think everyone is watching President Macron in a very big wide eyes because of the upcoming elections in in Europe and the upcoming commission. But in this particular case with this particular minister, he just really explained that my role is done. I don't find myself to be of any added value. And he said what he wants to do next. The gentleman is 71 years old. He wants to run again as mayor of Lyon. He used to be the mayor of Lyon for 16 years. So 
Um, I think so we should. So that's really original and innovative of him to you know, branch I, out into this well, new activity. You know what's interesting, Ryan, is when some politicians reach to a point where they believe that they are not of an added value, it's good that they step down. Rather, they just keep recreating themselves. And we see a number of them here in Brussels that they just don't want to let go. So. Yeah, it is a crisis, but in this particular case, I think it's just normal politics. Well, funny you mention added value, because that was a critical question in a court case brought by the French government to the European Court of Justice. And that was a reminder of two things. One, that the French state rumbles on in all its grandiosity, regardless of who is in government, and that the French state is never going to give up the seat of Strasbourg as a place where the European Parliament is based. So this court case actually went against France, where France was complaining that the MEPs had decided to vote on the 2017 EU budget in Brussels. Shock horror. They didn't do it in Strasbourg, like Mm -hmm. it sort of indicates in the treaties. Mm -hmm. And France wanted to basically tell them off and have that process reversed. And the court said, no, actually, if it's necessary to keep the EU running to do it in Brussels, then the MEPs are within their rights to do that. It's a very pragmatic judgment, I think. And it kind of fuels the one seat versus having two seats in Strasbourg and Brussels argument. I am a one-seater. I think that having the other seat in Strasbourg doesn't make any sense. It's super expensive. It's hard for people to get there. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. And I, I think it's one of the problematic things about the EU is that every member state has been promised something from the EU and the Strasbourg seat was promised to France. So in a way, it's it's going to be very controversial and they need to give them something else. And for example, they didn't give them the European Medicines Agency that went instead to Amsterdam. So... I think we're still going to be up against it, but it will fuel that flame. Are you a single seat, Alina? Yes, absolutely. Mm. I think it's cheaper and it's easier. And especially in what we work, it's easier for us. But still, they need a treaty. They need a political will. And you have a France, but you have Luxembourg as well, because so many times the council meet in Luxembourg. So it's a long process. It's a great win. It's a little victory, but still they shouldn't uh, stop. They should keep going on until Mm -hmm. we bring everything back to Brussels. I'm going to come in and be a devil's advocate here, because I think in principle and in theory, I support the single seat campaign. And then having spent a couple of days down in Strasbourg for the State of the Union speech last month after having avoided the place as much as I could during the past five years, it occurred to me that there is some value in taking people out of their normal operating zone and their comfort space. It it makes people act in a more collegial way. It makes them Mm. think a little bit differently, the way that everyone clears their head when they kind of go on a holiday or they leave sort of the, the daily grind. And I thought, well, maybe that is valuable. Like we complain also that there is a Brussels bubble that people are detached here mm-hmm. in the city and in the ways that they connect with each other here. So maybe even if it makes absolutely no sense on paper, maybe there is some value in being in Strasbourg. But is it not just moving the Brussels bubble to Strasbourg? There's possibly also that too. Okay, moving quickly on. We had two French thumbs up and WTFs. Let's move to two British thumbs up and WTFs. I don't think it's going to be any surprise if we call Jeremy Hunt's comments about the EU being like the Soviet Union because it doesn't want to let anyone leave. I think that's definitely a WTF moment, even if it is five days old now. Any new reflections on this rather gross exaggeration? I think it goes to show that the state of British diplomacy has really bottomed out. You would imagine that if you're trying to strike a deal with something like the EU, you wouldn't say something comparing it to the Soviet Union, which actually it grew out of the lessons of the Soviet Union and 
just a ridiculous thing to say. Especially not when one of the commissioners was actually born in a gulag. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that I think it's important that we push for career diplomats for such positions uh, rather than having these political appointees and surprising diplomatic climbers that they just become something. Career diplomats would really read history, uh, read the treaties, make their homework in order to move from one side to another. Sadly enough that it is UK because uh, I come from a region that we look at the British diplomacy as a world class, as they formed a whole region and their international presence, their power. And it is really diminishing and sad. So maybe there's they an should upside, Lena. Makes Boris Johnson look better, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. Or we can as well recommend some of the trainings taking place here in Brussels. We can recommend Sister and uh, other agencies that they can help the government of UK to just educate them a little bit more. A market opportunity yeah. for consultants <laughs> the continent over. Uh, then one final quick thumbs up, at least I'm going to nominate it as a thumbs up, is Theresa May and her Dancing Queen arrival on the stage. It's not me endorsing Theresa May's politics. It's just me saying it's good that politicians have a bit of self-awareness sometimes. I was really upset that they played the original Dancing Queen instead of Cher's new version from her new album Absolutely because that correct. would have been so much Excellent more on analysis. trend. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I thought it made her much more likable. That would have made her even more likable in my eyes. But, yeah, she harked back to last year's speech at the conference which was a total bomb I think it really made her look weak and this is a way of kind of harking back to that and saying you know I have a sense of humour about myself it made her much more likeable but then following that the speech really wasn't I think what everybody was expecting her to deliver Uh, Better or worse than Juncker's State of the Union Lena? Well, the performance, certainly she's way better. And I think she is really enhancing her dancing skills. We've just seen her dancing a couple of weeks ago in Africa. So I think there is a career launching after this for for Madame uh, May. Absolutely, it's better in terms of content. Again, we are just very busy talking about the dance, but we didn't analyze that much the content. Maybe uh, that was the point, actually. Uh, yeah. Well, Lena, Alva, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of EU Confidential. As always, it's a team effort, so I want to give great thanks to Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Lin. And if you have not joined our community formally, do it. We need you to come on and rate and review and subscribe, because if you do that, it makes it more visible on Apple, on SoundCloud, on all those platforms, and we can spread the word more about the podcast. So please take a minute to do that and we'll see you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.